Episode 42 of Sassmouth Dames podcast. Whenever I think about a category for director Nicholas Ray's pictures, Nathaniel Hawthorne springs to mind. Even though they were born more than 100 years apart and worked in different mediums, their work has similar traits. They extended a story outside dominant trends of their time. I'm drawn to the preface Hawthorne wrote for his book, The House of the Seven Gables, which was published in 1851. In a manifesto of sorts, he declared that what he wrote was a romance rather than a novel. Hawthorne explains himself thusly, When a writer calls his work a romance, it need hardly be observed that he wishes to claim a certain latitude, both as to its fashion and material, which he would not have felt himself entitled to assume, had he professed to be writing a novel. The latter form of composition is presumed to aim at a very minute fidelity, not merely to the possible, but to the probable and ordinary course of man's experience. The former, while as a work of art, it must rigidly subject itself to laws, and while it sins unpardonably, so far as it may swerve aside from the truth of the human heart, has fairly a right to present that truth under circumstances to a great extent of the writer's own choosing or creation. If he think fit also, he may manage his atmospherical medium as to bring out or mellow the lights and deepen and enrich the shadows of the picture. Hawthorne concludes his case for the romance over the novel a little further on. Many writers lay very great stress upon some definite moral purpose at which they profess to aim their works. Not to be deficient in this particular, the author has provided himself with a moral, the truth namely that the wrongdoing of one generation lives into successive ones and, divesting itself of every temporary advantage, becomes a pure and uncontrollable mischief. Nathaniel Hawthorne shifts the focus of his relationship with the novel. In context with contemporaries, he distinguishes his own work through a more relevant genre. He was interested in something more than faithfully depicting reality. As the author of romance, he claimed to eschew moral purpose only to deliver it in grander, more figurative terms than any Sunday school parable. Hawthorne locates the mischief he spoke of and what we would now recognize as patriarchy. Novels such as The Scarlet Letter and The House of the Seven Gables, as well as short stories as The Birthmark, share the theme of men who are corrupt and who abuse women. I connect Nicholas Ray to Hawthorne because Ray is often cast in the film noir tradition, when many of his best pictures harbor another atmosphere, another style altogether. They are woman's pictures. Tell me you couldn't imagine Nick Ray adapting Hawthorne's brilliant story, The Birthmark, to the screen. It would have starred, say, James Mason as the scientist who becomes obsessed with removing the little hand-shaped birthmark from his otherwise flawlessly beautiful wife, played by, let's say, a quality sassmouth dame like Eve Gardner. 
The Sins of the Father was one of Hawthorne's favorite themes, and Nick Ray's work revisits the same territory. Ray made pictures aligned with the noir trend of the period, but he drew our sympathy to women. In Nicholas Ray's best pictures, men are wrapped up with the burden of status and appearances, or they are braggarts, and oftentimes they are monsters. In Ray's pictures, like in Hawthorne's prose, women are beleaguered in a world that men created. They feel ambivalent or estranged, a point of view that's usually reserved for men in the classic noir series, but is the lifeblood in women's pictures. For example, Crawford's Vienna must work ten times harder than any man to hold on what she has in Johnny Guitar. She tells her old lover that women need slip only once and they're branded a tramp. Living in a world of double standards creates everyday obstacles. As a result, they are either hunted by a posse like Vienna, or else in their own homes, as with Gloria Graham in In a Lonely Place, or Barbara Rush in Bigger Than Life. Men become human in raised pictures when they realize that they have a raw deal from the traditional masculine ideals. For example, when Bogart finally realizes that his tough guy act isn't an act and that he's a vicious bastard at the end of In a Lonely Place. Let's add the moment when James Mason realizes he's become a modern-day Abraham in Bigger Than Life. Or when Bob Mitchum learns he's wrecking his body and soul in order to realize some tough and romantic ideal in Ray's rodeo picture, The Lusty Men. Or when James Dean rejects the games of chicken that ward off the stultifying effects of a bedroom community and rebel without a cause. Or when Bob Ryan learns there's an alternative to punching everybody's lights out in On Dangerous Ground. Ray's pictures investigate the carceral effect of living in a man's world. Imprisoned in conformity and tradition, men and women suffer. I'm not trying to claim that Nicholas Ray is a feminist pioneer. He was just more clear-eyed about the inherited nasty traits and longings of men. He picked at the scabs left from toxic masculinity that are as real as a chemical burn. When Hawthorne speaks of generations and a cursed home to critique the social order, Ray extends the same for generations of men who grow up under the dehumanizing effects of macho entitlements. Women's pictures from the era frequently receive the noir label to somehow confer importance and rigor and redeem it from the tainted feminized label. Mildred Pierce, Nell Voyager, No Man of Her Own, The File on Thelma Jordan, The Damn Don't Cry, Cry Wolf, Sudden Fear are all women's pictures made palatable to a certain brand of film critic by applying the label noir. If noir didn't exactly kill women's pictures, it fired the first shot. We need to jettison the the noir category imposed by male critics and insist that we call them by their name, woman's pictures. In Ray's picture, Born to be Bad from 1950, rather than view Joan Fontaine's character, Christabel Kane, as another noir dame, we have more to gain if we consider her as a post-war baby face. She takes one gander at Zachary Scott, rich, spoiled, and gullible. He's so ready to believe her aw shucks, sweetness, and light act that Christabel Christabel goes right for his wallet. 
She's following the Nietzsche enthusiast Cobbler, who once told Barbara Stanwyck in 1933 to use men to get the things you want. Instead of referencing philosophy, we gain another context for her character, based on the historical and musical comparison, courtesy of Bob Ryan. His character, Nick Bradley, christens her a cross between Lucretia Borgia and Pega My Heart. Nick identifies the Janice-faced nature of the icy blonde. She has two different faces. She's mercenary, determined, yet in every outward sense, a portrait of the perfect feminine ideal. Christabel uses the master's tools to get the master's house. She doesn't need to attend business school as her uncle had planned. She already has an MBA in the quickest route to build a fortune. Christabel indulges in bad behavior, but unlike many other women on screen, she doesn't pay the ultimate price. She somehow flew under the production code's codes radar. Nicholas Ray had little praise for Joan Fontaine's performance. He offered the following brickbat. Never let the mechanical, the technical, take precedence over the quality and substance of your emotional preparation, your emotional memory, sense memory, and imagination. In a film, you always have another chance, another take. Joan Fontaine, who starred in my second film, who won the Oscar twice, prided herself in knowing exactly where her key light was and being able to make a wardrobe change in 30 seconds without causing a moment's delay for the crew. And all her talent dried up in that over-awareness. By way of rebuttal, it's disingenuous to separate the emotional bedrock from the technique of performing for the camera. Good actors know the character's interior life, but they also know their key light. They know their marks. Think of John Barrymore putting Carol Lombard's Mildred Plotka through her paces on stage so she flowers into the star Lily Garland. Actors do more than emote. They must balance feeling and perception with bits of business and physical staging. Think of Constance Bennett in What Price Hollywood when she spends all night rehearsing on the stairs to salvage the the disastrous screen test she gave. It took her all night to learn how to walk down the stairs and deliver one line. Emotions without craft would be unintelligible and chaotic for an, an audience. A good actor does more than simply feel something. It's indivisible, all of one piece. Awareness of how a picture works is the foundation of the craft. Joan Crawford knew it, Cary Grant knew it, Barbara Stanwyck, Charles Boyer, Greta Garbo, Irene Dunn, Joel McRae, James Cagney. If I'm going to be bitchy about it, I can't think of one actor from the classic studio era who had a lengthy career who didn't know the mechanical aspects of acting for the screen. Joan Fontaine masters underplay in this picture. When she plays Christabel Kane, she shows us a character who conceals her true motivations. Fontaine breathes life into a woman who is always acting, always giving a performance. Christabel is more calculating than the tax man looking at a bag of phony receipts. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what Ray thought of Fontaine, Christabel, or this picture. A sassmouth dame knows her own when she sees one. Women in the audience respond to Joan Fontaine's performance as a bit of subversive resistance to the authority of Joseph Breen in the production code office. 
Christabel can size up most scenarios to her advantage because she knows what meant that men see what they want to see, a pretty woman in a nipped waist frock with a doll-like full skirt who waits to be plucked out of the crowd. Joan Fontaine limits to her, herself to one small tell or a gesture that alerts viewers to an incongruity between what her character says and what she really thinks. Another actor may have made a more obvious choice, say, with a half-smile, a smirk, a sidelong glance, or bat lashes. Joan Fontana's Christabel, though, uses a quick caress of her throat, just a light touch, a grasp at her neckline that implies a hidden duplicity. Christabel arrives early to a flat chair with her uncle's copy editor, Donna, played by Joan Leslie. She sits perched on the sofa in a relaxed fashion. By contrast, the woman of the flat dashes around trying to organize a cocktail party. She trips over Christabel's baggage and lands flat on her face. It's symbolic of how Christabel always places herself at the center of attention. Christabel offers to find a hotel to get out of the busy woman's way. Donna wouldn't hear of it and invites her to stay. At this point, Joan Fontaine relaxes when she hears what she was waiting to hear. When she's satisfied that her place is secure, she runs her fingers along the fur collar of her cloak. It's a gesture that shows she's reassured her plan had worked. When Christabel's hand strokes her collar or at her throat, it stems directly from her interior stream of consciousness. She's self-soothing when she does it. All according to plan, it says. It points out a slippage between what she says she wants and what she really wants. Three scenes showcase Christabel's gift for manipulation. She gets what she wants from using an arsenal loaded with traditionally gender-appropriate weapons. In the jewelry shop scene, she accompanies Zachary Scott to help him choose a birthday gift for his fiancée, her roommate Donna. By embodying demure feminine traits, she embraces simplicity and avoids extravagance. Christabel proposes a costume cameo because it's old-fashioned, like Donna. Zachary Scott declines her advice and purchases an expensive emerald necklace. Just like a card sharp who lets the mark win a few hands before taking all the chips and a big fat check to boot, Christabel refrains from showing any interest in luxury goods. But she's able to paint Donna in a most unflattering light, first by calling her old-fashioned like a cheap brooch, and then by making Donna appear greedy. Only a truly calculating woman could remain placid or unmoved by an array of gorgeous emeralds. Christabel's disapproval for the luxurious jewelry makes the pleasure that Donna exhibits appear tawdry and borderline obscene. Christabel had planted the seed gold digger, and as soon as Zachary Scott witnesses Joan Leslie's delight, he looks like he swallowed a mouthful of ash. The well now poisoned, it's only a matter of time before he dumps Donna and marries Christabel. In another scene, Christabel's aunt arrives for a visit. Aunt Clara, played by Virginia Farmer, admonishes Zachary Scott for spoiling his new bride. Instead, he should keep her tastes for simple things so she keeps her virtue. And as soon as she says this, you know that Christabel will dispatch her at the first opportunity. 
When Christabel enters the aunt's guest room, she says good, to say good night. She offers to prepare the pensioner's medicine. And you wonder if Joan Fontaine is revisiting her character from the picture Ivy from 1947. The old woman is bewildered when Joan's character says she must leave. She's got it. She thought maybe she was going to have a nice home and not be so lonely or isolated. But out she goes. Christabel, though, isn't a monster. She simply puts herself first like men have done for ages. Who among us would want someone around the house to scold us for our moral improvement or warn a husband off buying expensive gifts? In her defense, Christabel has graduated from the time when she had to please her elders. She's the woman of her own house now, not a foundling niece forever to be grateful for scraps. Sorry, Aunt Clara. Pack your bags and the folky wisdom. Christabel has more important things to do, like start a fur collection. The third scene that highlights Christabel's machinations occurs when the newlyweds host a party. As Christabel settles into her role as wealthy socialite, she blocks her husband out of her schedule, which is now busy with hobnobbing and society affairs. And the sweet little full skirts rotate out of her wardrobe. For the charity gala in their home, she swans about as hostess, fully determined to hold on to her wife bona fides and reignite hot sex with Bob Ryan. Christabel is panther sleek in a sumptuous satin column gown. It's embellished with four pin-tucked bustle pleats that lend more swagger to her gait than if she stood at the altar of Westminster Abbey wearing a 40-foot train. Joan Fontaine doesn't need a crown with bustle pleats. She is the 1950 embodiment of having your cake and eating it too. Bob Ryan suggests she's evil for wanting a husband and a lover. And somewhere up in heaven, Ernest Lubitsch laughed with a cigar in, his, in the corner of his mouth. And Miriam Hopkins laughed likewise, tucked away in her Tony Flat in Sutton Place. In less than 20 years, the narrative prospects for women in Hollywood shrank from a hot three-way in Design for Living to men who have to hide from sexually realized women by flying up into the clouds, or they can't bear to see women with a sexual desire that isn't tied to the rules of pearls and twin sets. A third man orbits Christabel, Gobby, the artist, played by Mel Farrar, but he's only interested in her financially rather than sexually. One hallmark or rite of passage of woman's success in society is to have a man finance an oil painting. Scandal for a woman only increases the painting's value, even with a visible price tag that Christabel's portrait reaches of $1,000. The price tag may be used as some kind of commentary on Christabel's mercenary design that she's for sale, but Gobby, the struggling artist, is also motivated by the cash nexus. The idea that women or artists can live by ideals alone seems like kid stuff. When exiting Zachary Scott's mansion, Christabel says she doesn't want anything that belongs to her ex-husband. She speaks to Gobby. He watches a butler pile fur coats in the back seat with the solemnity of a funeral pallbearer. Gobby queries the lavish pelts. Christabel demisses a matter of principle with sassmouth pragmatism. She'll just have to make an exception. 
Originally, Born to be Bad was titled Bed of Roses, which just so happens to be referenced in the title of Fontaine's memoir, No Bed of Roses, published in 1978. I'll close the episode with a short passage from No Bed of Roses, where Joan Fontaine talks about the production. The first film I made after the birth of my daughter was Born to be Bad. Joan Harrison, Hitchcock's writer, had shown me the novel All Kneeling by Anne Parrish and suggested it might make an interesting vehicle for me, one that would give me a chance to break away from the English lady heroines that I'd been playing. I bought the rights to the book and sold them to RKO. Despite a cast that included Robert Ryan, Zachary Scott, and Mel Farrar, direction by Nicholas Ray, the only acceptable part of the film was my wardrobe designed by Tina Lesser. During the making of Born to be Bad, Howard Hughes bought the RKO Studios, Lock, Stock, and Fontaine's Contract too. My boss was now the same man who had been proposing to me for over 10 years. I was summoned to his office. There, Howard informed me that we were to see the rushes together every evening, and that he had heard the Dozers were breaking up. Was it true? Again, he proposed. Why me, Howard? Why me? Because you know the business, because you like to travel, you like to fly. Why, I haven't even been to South America. We could read scripts together, play golf, see the world. Then he added a remark that was to explain his reclusiveness. Since my accident in 1946, I can't bear to look at my face in the mirror when I shave. I'm getting ugly and I don't want to be seen. And with my deafness, I haven't much more time to be among people. At Fortis that evening, I recounted to Bill the entire conversation I'd had with Howard. He looked thoughtful. I'd like to run RKO again, he confessed, and our marriage isn't any good anymore anyway. I was never in love with Howard. As a matter of fact, I was a little afraid of him. Certainly, one could not be relaxed and at ease with a man of so much wealth, power, and influence. He had no humor, no gaiety, no sense of joy, no vivacity that was apparent to me. Everything seemed to be a deal, a business arrangement, regardless of the picture he had tried to paint of our future together. But money is sexy, and he certainly had a blinding overabundance of cash appeal. The next afternoon, I went into Howard's office again to explain that Bill might be willing to give me a divorce under certain terms. But before I could even consider another marriage, I would have to get to know Howard much better to see if the life he envisioned for us was possible. And there was Debbie. What about her? Howard pressed the intercom button on the desk, mumbling into it, and said, let's go. A shabby, inconspicuous car was waiting for us below. We got into it, Howard driving along Sunset Boulevard, eventually turning towards the hills. At a white stucco red-tiled house, he got out and ushered me into the indifferently furnished living room. The front door had been unlocked. What's all this, Howard? Who are we visiting? Cocking his head to one side as he often did to hear better, in his quiet, level monotone, he answered, It's yours. Until your divorce is final, we can meet here. I turned quickly and raced out the front door. Back in his car, Howard soon learned that I had my own house, thank you. I was not about to lead a shady double life with anyone. Even though I was not a lawyer, it was obvious to me that if I did so, Debbie's father would have justifiable grounds to gain her custody. Howard obviously couldn't have cared less. Undeterred, Howard began telephoning me at the house, undoubtedly to bring matters between the Dozers to a head. Sometimes Bill would answer and hand me the phone, God calling. 
Bill even seemed amused about the situation, but I was not. California laws are very protective about children. If it could be proven that I was having an affair, even after divorce proceedings had begun, I most certainly would have lost custody of my child. Two, the newspapers could have had a field day, and I could have ended up in a monumental scandal, no child, no career, no anything. One evening, Howard telephoned me to say he wanted to discuss our situation further and would meet me in his car in Brentwood. Bill agreed to have dinner with friends while I was out. At 8 o'clock, I parked my car behind Howard's, and we set off in his, in his along the coast highway. Howard had a, had a solution. Because of my own legal situation, a year-long California divorce would be less chancy than a quick one obtained in Reno or Mexico. I was to live at a ranch he would rent for me in Nevada or Arizona while I got the divorce. He would fly in on weekends to visit me. What? Coop me up for a year? No friends? No films? And what about Debbie? I thought of the Cole Porter song, Don't Fence Me In. Sorry, Howard, it won't do. Howard kept looking in the rearview mirror as we approached Malibu. I, too, could see exceptionally bright lights that shone steadily in the mirror. Howard abruptly turned the car southward. We were being followed. I saw a black limousine with white wall tires turning in half circle when we made it resume its tail behind us. Back in my own car again, I waved goodbye to Howard as the limousine stopped at the corner. Howard had a fair idea of who had followed us. So did I. I recognized the driver. I was to see him again. Ten minutes later, back at Fortis, I telephoned Bill at the number he had given me and told him about the conversation with Howard and of the black limousine. He was not pleased. His bewildering comment was, you've botched it. Then silence. He hung up on the receiver abruptly. Bill did eventually get his old office back at RKO, but I was to wait for some time before getting a divorce. I was one of the few girls pursued by Howard Hughes who never had an affair with him. Thanks very much for listening to me talk about a romance for Sassmouth Dames, a woman who behaves as she likes without the usual consequences. I can't get enough of Joan Fontaine behaving badly. You can find this at that Russian website I keep telling you about. Join me next time when I talk about um, Parnell with guests starring Clark Gable and Myrna Loy. Thanks very much. Bye.